This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Primary biliary cholangitis is a rare, chronic, progressive, autoimmune disease of the liver. People with the condition suffer from inflammation, destruction of the intrahepatic bile ducts, and accumulate toxic acids that can cause damage over time. The condition can lead to fibrosis, cirrhosis, and liver failure. Simabe Therapeutics is developing an experimental therapy, Celadelpar, as a treatment for PBC. We spoke to Sujal Shah, president and CEO of Simabe, about PBC, Celadelpar, and why this first-in-class therapy has the promise for addressing a condition with high unmet needs. Sujal, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Sima Bay, the rare liver disease, primary biliary cholangitis, or PBC, and your experimental therapy to treat it. Let's start with PBC. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? Well, PBC, or primary biliary cholangitis, as you mentioned, is a rare, progressive, and chronic autoimmune liver disease. The disease is actually characterized by impaired bile flow, or cholestasis, and it leads to portal inflammation in the liver and eventually a destruction of the intrahepatic small bile ducts in the liver that are responsible for taking the bile acids produced in the liver and transporting them to the gallbladder and to your intestine for essential digestion. Uh, as that bile acid builds up, as I mentioned, eventually it leads to an overall destruction of intrahepatic bile ducts. From that, you get chronic inflammation, fibrosis, and eventually cirrhosis, which leads to the need for liver transplant. Now, a couple of other quick things I'll mention about PBC. The disease itself is marked by elevations in serum markers of cholestasis, including the enzymes alkaline phosphatase, or ALP, uh, gamma GT, and total bilirubin. And uh, I'll also mention that clinical symptoms of the disease include fatigue, an intense level of fatigue, and puritis, or itching, which can severely impact quality of life for patients. Uh, PBC, as a rare disease, uh, actually affects uh, about one in uh, 100 women, uh, 1,000 women over the age of 40. Uh, there is uh, a, a preponderance of this disease in women versus men, not well understood, but I'd say 90% of the cases are, in fact, women. Uh, so in the U.S., there's uh, 
approximately 130,000 people uh, known to have PBC. How is the condition generally diagnosed these days? So, you know, the diagnosis of PBC, in in fact, has evolved. Uh, Originally, you would require a liver biopsy and an assessment by a liver pathologist. Biopsy is no longer required to positively diagnose PBC. In fact, uh, it can be one of three measures used, but you can do so in the absence of biopsy with an elevation of alkaline phosphatase, or ALP, well above the upper limits of normal, plus positive anti-mitochondrial antibodies. As an autoimmune disease, the vast majority of patients, in fact, uh, have autoimmune mitochondrial antibodies, auto-mitochondrial antibodies. And so positive AMA plus elevated alkaline phosphatase, those two criteria can positively diagnose PBC in the absence of, of the need for a liver biopsy. And so, in fact, it's not very common today uh, to require a biopsy to diagnose PBC, although it can be used, again, as one of those three confirmatory measures to diagnose PBC. So would a doctor pick this up with a simple routine blood test, or would they have to be looking for this? Great question. You know, in, in fact, uh, it's not uncommon uh, for patients to be diagnosed sometime later in disease because, uh, in fact, it's not a routine measure to look at alkaline phosphatase. Uh, I think what you would typically find is a patient experiencing, you know, some significant level of fatigue. And, and I should be clear here, uh, PBC-related fatigue is, is not like many of us might experience uh, when we think of fatigue when we're tired or haven't gotten a lot of sleep. The type of fatigue patients experience you know, includes things like overall brain fog, or some patients will describe a feeling like they're in quicksand. They just cannot get themselves to move. Many patients can't get themselves to leave their home or their apartment uh, even just to go out is is a significant challenge. So it, uh, it's a it's a chronic level of fatigue that's quite debilitating. So it's often either this feeling of fatigue or puritis or itching that would then lead, uh, you know, a physician more often a gastroenterologist once a patient is referred, but but even a primary care physician to then order a lab test to look at the serum markers of alkaline phosphatase. And so that's, you know, typically when someone realizes uh, that a patient uh, is likely to have PBC. And again, once is confirmed with a positive AMA test, most typically. You mentioned the, the itching. I think for, for most people who haven't experienced a disease like this, uh, itching doesn't sound like a, a horrendous sy- symptom. But, you know, when I hear patients who actually go through this, it's, this is not just normal itching. What's it like to live with a condition like this? Yeah, you know, and another great question. And, and we have, uh, including myself, spent a significant amount of time with patient advocacy groups, a significant amount of time understanding uh, the disease from patients themselves. And the puritis that patients uh, describe, you know, first of all, uh, I think I, I like to at least articulate, uh, you know, to the average person, this is not and itching like many experience on their skin, for example, where if you have a mild rash or rash or some dry skin and you itch, then uh, at the end of the day, you know, you, you can 
itch that part of your skin and get some relief, even if it's only temporary or put some ointment. You know, cholestatic itch as it relates to puritis related to PVC is, is almost internal, if you will. Uh, and, and therefore, when a patient has the sensation that their arm or their leg is itching, they'll scratch to no avail. There's no relief from scratching. In fact, you know, the, the scratching is just a trigger mechanism uh, to attempt to relieve that itch, uh, but it doesn't have an effect, in fact, because this itch is almost generated internally, believed to be associated with a buildup of bile acids or a composition of specific bile acids, not overly well understood, but that's the, the leading uh, theory in, in terms of how this itch is generated. Patients will scratch to the point of breaking skin and bleeding, uh, and, and it's not just the itching in private. It's being at a restaurant and having dinner and not being able to control uh, yourself from from itching multiple body parts, and then the psychological effect of feeling as though people are looking at you or just feeling you know really like you're standing out in public has a significant psychological detrimental effect once again on overall quality of life, mental health, emotional health. Uh, that's really what this cholestatic itch does does to patients and and you're you're absolutely right. It's quite extraordinary you know, versus how we think of common dermage uh, and, and quite debilitating uh, for, for these patients. How is PBC treated today? And, and what's the prognosis for someone with the condition? So, you know, the, the disease, generally speaking, is a slowly progressing chronic disease. And so it's not uncommon uh, for patients, as I mentioned, with progression from uh, from inflammation to fibrosis to cirrhosis to the need for liver transplant, it's not uncommon for that path to take anywhere from 10 to 15 years. There are certainly patients that progress much more quickly in that path. Uh, and in fact, when patients are diagnosed uh, at a younger age, often the disease is much more progressive um, uh, over, over its time course and more quickly progressing in its, in its time course. Uh, so that gives you a general backdrop of, of how this progresses. Now, of course, even in between that 10 to 15 years, it may take for a patient to progress to cirrhosis and the need for liver transplant is significant suffering for patients and, and uh, health challenges all throughout. It's, so it's not that, you know, you live a healthy life for 10 to 15 years and all of a sudden you have, have cirrhosis. It is, it is a very challenging disease to even live through, of course, in that time frame. There are only two drugs approved for PBC patients today. The first drug is called ursodeoxycholic acid, or UDCA. That is first-line therapy for patients with PBC. And so really all patients, once diagnosed, will initiate a therapy with UDCA. Really, almost all patients uh, have some benefit from UDCA. And, and what is that benefit? I think largely that benefit is to reduce the level of alkaline phosphatase uh, in the liver of patients and ultimately to help flush the bile ducts or reduce the level of cholestasis uh, and therefore effectively slow the progression of disease. It's certainly not a cure. We don't have a cure for patients with PVC today, 
But UDCA has been shown over the years to actually improve outcomes for patients. So clinical studies that have been conducted to get ursidioxycholic acid approved, this is now 30 years ago, have been shown to improve transplant-free survival for patients. Um, and so that's the therapy that's initiated as a first line. It's a generic treatment for patients today, although it's not um, cheap, I would say, in many, many uh, ways. It, it can cost several thousand dollars a year. Um, uh, but that is first-line treatment. And as I mentioned, really, most patients have at least some benefit. There are a small uh, percentage of patients, maybe around 5%, that are intolerant to treatment. What does that mean? It, it generally means they have either some GI issues or some other challenges uh, as they would take UDCA daily and therefore uh, are, are intolerant. The, the more significant proportion of patients that are not fully or, or uh, completely treated with UDCA, maybe as large as 40% of those patients who we would describe as having really an incomplete response to UDCA. What, is, what does incomplete response mean? It means, you know, a patient's alkaline phosphatase and level of cholestasis is, is, is quite advanced, and they take UDCA, and they have some improvement. Their alkaline phosphatase, for example, let's say it's three times the upper limit of normal at diagnosis. Maybe that patient gets down to two times the upper limit of normal, so there is a reduction, but they're still highly elevated, uh, double the, the upper end of normal limits. And therefore, although there's some improvement and some reduction in disease progression, they're still at an elevated level of risk of progressing disease. And so that's a patient we would characterize as having an incomplete response or an inadequate response to UDCA. Now, today, uh, and, and as recently as 2016, the first ever drug approved for second-line treatment for those patients who are either inadequate responders to UDCA or intolerant is a drug called abetacolic acid. The brand name is Ocalava. Uh, Ocalava is an FXR agonist, so it's a different mechanism than UDCA. And in the phase three clinical studies, if you look at the label for Ocalava, you will see that just under 50% of patients that took Ocalava either on top of UDCA as inadequate responders or as monotherapy for those that were intolerant actually met the primary endpoint of having a reduction in alkaline phosphatase, bringing it below 1.67 times the upper limit of normal with at least a 15% drop in alkaline phosphatase and normal bilirubin measured at 12 months. And so there are patients that benefit from Ocalava in terms of their level of cholestasis and alkaline phosphatase and will have some further improvement in reducing the risk of disease progression. But there's still, again, according to their phase three data, another 50% of patients who remain as inadequate responders. Their alkaline phosphatase doesn't drop to the point of meeting that primary endpoint. And so they, they are deemed to be, again, incomplete responders or inadequate responders, even to abeticolic acid or ocalava as second-line treatment. There is one other challenge with abeticolic acid in particular. Uh, I'll highlight two, but the one other challenge first I'd like to point to is that drug can actually cause or worsen puritis in PBC patients. 
And so it's believed that up to 70% of PBC patients have experienced puritis at some point in time in their disease. And those that take Ocalava as second line treatment, if they already have some itch, that itch can actually worsen. If they don't have itch, they can actually start experiencing itch. And so there's a significant tolerability issue with abeticolic acid uh, that, that patients experience. Uh, and then finally, there have been some challenges uh, around overall safety, particularly in more advanced PBC patients. Uh, and those are reflected in black box warnings for Ocalava that are also on the label. And so as I described to you this picture of only two treatment alternatives for PBC patients today, hopefully you can appreciate that the unmet need today remains for treatment alternatives with greater efficacy, the ability to actually uh, uh, further reduce the risk of disease progression and in a greater proportion of patients, and then a, a need for, in fact, better tolerability. Uh, as I mentioned, Ocalava can cause or worsen itch. UDCA, although it's not known to cause or worsen itch, it's also not known to actually improve itch. In fact, there's nothing approved for patients today uh, that have PBC-related puritis. And so there is also a need uh, to address this, this uh, clinical symptom burden that patients experience. And then finally, you know, of course, again, given the, the black box warnings for Ocalava in more advanced patients, I would say there is yet a third stool of need, which is uh, safer treatment alternatives for patients. What is PPAR Delta and, and what role does it play with regards to PBC? Yeah, great question. And so PPAR Delta is uh, a nuclear receptor um, that actually drives metabolism, uh, transport, uh, storage of fatty acids. Okay, that's a fundamental mechanism of PPAR Delta. Now, in the liver, there are pluripotent benefits of agonizing PPAR Delta. Again, PPAR Delta as a nuclear receptor agonist and drugs that agonize PPAR Delta, like Celadelpar, in fact, will upregulate various genes and downregulate various genes involved in these metabolic processes. Importantly, PPAR Delta is expressed in all four major cell types of the liver. It's expressed in really the workhorse cell type of the liver called hepatocytes. That makes up much of, of your liver tissue, but it's also expressed in kupfer cells in the liver, which are the resident macrophages of, or inflammatory cell type, stellate cells, which are responsible for initiating collagen synthesis and the fibrotic process, as well as cholangiocytes, which line uh, the, the inner uh, wall of, of bile ducts. So PPAR delta is expressed in all four of these major cell types. And in fact, we think is quite specifically suited for chronic inflammatory liver disease. And I'll give you just very quick highlight of, of why we think PPAR Delta in particular is, is a great target for chronic uh, inflammatory liver diseases. First of all, in hepatocytes, as I mentioned, PPAR Delta agonism actually decreases bile acid synthesis. So as I mentioned to you in PBC, part of the challenge is bile acid builds up in the livers of, of PBC patients given the destruction of the intrahepatic bile ducts, which uh, are used to flush out bile acids. 
you have a, a buildup of bile acids in the liver in, in disease like PBC. And so Celadelpar actually regulates uh, PPAR delta by agonizing PPAR delta and inhibiting the synthesis of bile acids. Now, bile acids are actually created from the precursor cholesterol, which are converted into bile acids, and PPAR delta agonism also decreases cholesterol synthesis. So you decrease the substrate, and you also decrease the synthesis of bile, bile acids themselves. Also in the hepatocyte, PPAR delta agonism, as I mentioned, drives fatty acid oxidation. You burn triglycerides, uh, and that reduces fatty acids. It also inhibits, as I mentioned, cholesterol synthesis. So you see this reduction in LDL cholesterol. And PBC patients aren't necessarily at a risk for cardiovascular disease, but they often can have elevated cholesterol, slightly elevated cholesterol. And that is an added benefit to these patients uh, with, with a drug that, that agonizes PPAR delta like Celadelpar. That again is in contrast, I should mention, to abeticolic acid, which actually increases LDL cholesterol. Again, and not a major concern in PBC patients as it is in fatty liver diseases like NASH, for example. But those are two actions of PPAR delta in hepatocytes that are quite important. Another key element of the action of PPAR delta, particularly in the liver, is that it's anti-inflammatory. Because it's expressed in, in the resident macrophage cell type in the liver, Kupfer cells, as well as circulating macrophages outside the liver, it's known to actually decrease NF-kappa-B dependent gene activation. And so a very fancy way for me to say that it's anti-inflammatory. It reduces inflammatory cytokines. And because PBC is a chronic inflammatory liver disease, this anti-inflammatory benefit we think is quite important to the longer-term potential outcomes for patients. And then finally, PPAR delta is expressed in these stellate cells of the liver where it's known to actually be antifibrotic. It, it effectively arrests these stellate cells in the quiescent state. Uh, it actually decreases collagen synthesis and deposition. And so again, this antifibrotic effect, as I mentioned, even PBC will progress from, uh, from inflammation to fibrosis to cirrhosis. This effect we also believe has a potential to lead to better longer-term outcomes for PBC patients. So there's a variety of different effects of PPAR delta in particular that we think is quite well-suited for chronic inflammatory liver disease. What's known about the safety and efficacy of Celadelpar from studies that have been done to date? So, you know, we've actually been studying Celadelpar specifically in PBC patients since 2015. Uh, we, in fact, have had uh, Celadelpar in patients with PBC, north of 300 patients with PBC, where we've actually seen very good safety and, and efficacy. You know, just focusing for a moment on the safety review, it's, it's important for me to point out, as a drug developer, it is our responsibility to measure and assess safety for the life of a drug through development, but also from commercialization through the life of commercialization for any drug. And that's important. Uh, that, so we're always learning more about the overall safety uh, of any drug in any indication, even after it's approved. And I can tell you, at least to date, Celadelpar has been shown to be safe and well-tolerated in PBC patients. We've studied Celadelpar as low as two milligrams and all the way up to 200 milligrams in patients with PBC. 
And we're focused today in our current phase three study for registration of Celadelparin PBC at 10 milligrams. And at 10 milligrams, we see some of the things that I mentioned to you earlier uh, as potentially meeting unmet needs for patients with PBC. We're seeing greater efficacy than we've seen with the drugs that are already approved. I should point out, I'm not giving you that assessment from head-to-head data as opposed to independent studies largely in the same patient population, but we're seeing this improved efficacy. We're seeing a greater proportion of patients have improved efficacy. We are seeing an anti-inflammatory effect in patients, and we're also seeing an antipyritic effect. And that's one of the things that's really exciting is our data is showing the ability for Celadelpar to actually reduce puritis. Now, we've got to confirm it once again in our ongoing phase three study. Uh, And I know we'll get to some of the data elements here shortly, but those are some of the promising things we've seen. And we've seen it in the backdrop of very good safety in patients overall. I'll give you a couple of summaries here. We haven't seen anything at the doses we're studying today and the 10 milligram dose that we're studying in phase three that would prevent us from completing this phase three and potentially registering Celadelpar if successful and launching this dose um, as a chronic treatment alternative for for patients. And again, this would be chronic treatment. They would take Celadelpar if approved once a day through the rest of their life to, again, help slow the progression of disease and hopefully not ever progress to a liver-related outcome, including the need for liver transplant. So we've not seen anything from a safety review perspective uh, that would cause concern. PPAR Delta, in particular, outside of the liver, is expressed in muscle. So that's a tissue in which you have to, do, you have, to have some diligent uh, assessment of you know, either causing muscle pain or myalgias. We haven't seen anything related there at these doses that would have any concern from us continuing to progress. So I think those are the important things. The other things we've seen in clinical studies are, you know, things that are not uncommon uh, of seeing in general. So whether whether the most common things are, you know, patients that still experience some puritis, that's a common, you know, call it adverse event that's measured or at least, uh, uh, you know, I think assessed in clinical studies, uh, you know, abdominal pains, nausea, headache. These are some of the more standard things that are not atypical to see and nothing that we've seen of concern relative to Celadelpar versus even placebo uh, in a prior uh, truncated phase three study that, that we had uh, conducted. What's the path forward to filing for an approval? Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, we've conducted phase two studies with significant dose ranging. Those studies actually uh, dose patients out to a year. Uh, 95% of those patients stayed on, elected to stay on treatment into a long-term study. So in fact, uh, recently at the liver meeting, uh, ASLD, the liver meeting in, in November of this, of this year, we reported data for a little over 50 patients out to two years of treatment, where we see the effects actually continue to improve from one year to two years, and we still see good safety overall in that population, some really exciting data. But even the one-year phase two data led us and supported us moving into phase three. We currently are enrolling a global phase three registration study called RESPONSE, the details of which can be found on clintrials.gov and and plebcclinicalstudies.com. And so uh, we're enrolling right now this global phase three uh, study 
that would, if successful, we believe allow us to register Celadelpar in the U.S. as well as in Europe. We continue to look for opportunities to bring Celadelpar more broadly globally outside of those two key regions. But currently, we're enrolling patients in this phase three study response. We anticipate that study completing enrollment in the first half of next year. It is a 12-month dosing period, so 52 weeks of treatment. And so if we're successful at completing enrollment in the first half of next year, approximately 13 months from the last patient into the study, we would have top-line results from that response study. So say Q2 or Q3 of 2023. And once again, if that data is positive, if it reflects the data we've amassed to date in a significant number of PBC patients, we would then look to file for approval uh, by the end of 2023 uh, for a 2024 approval and launch. This is a molecule that was originally licensed from Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Are they playing any role in the development or commercialization of Celadelpar? So great question. And uh, you're right. It's actually quite an interesting story. Uh, Sema Bay was developing another molecule uh, to address some unmet needs in type 2 diabetes. And that was a very promising uh, molecule in phase 2. At the time, this is in the early 2000s, the company was looking to outlicense the rights to that drug. Type 2 diabetes obviously is a very large disease and requires a significant amount of capital. And so they, as they entertained licensing discussions, they, which were quite competitive, the company had the foresight to ask those interested to not only offer economics for that type 2 diabetes potential drug, but also offer in return another clinical asset that Sema Bay could wholly own. And so Sema Bay received Celadelpar, uh, as you mentioned, from Janssen in this prior transaction, effectively as a quit. There was no upfront payment. There are no trailing milestone obligations. We do owe Janssen a 5 to 8% royalty if the drug is approved. But outside of that, the drug is wholly owned uh, by Sema Bay, and Sema Bay is really conducting the entirety of the development program in PBC. And is the expectation that you would commercialize this on your own, or are you going to be seeking a partner? So, you know, one of the great things about uh, focusing in rare disease is the ability for companies like Sema Bay really to go end to end from development all the way through commercialization and ultimately achieve the objective that we all care about inside the walls of Sema Bay, which is to put this drug uh, in the hands of patients that can benefit and in the hands of as many patients with PBC that can benefit. And so as a rare disease, uh, in the, at least in the U.S., it requires a relatively reasonably sized sales force, perhaps a sales force as small as 40 to 50 sales reps with perhaps another dozen medical science liaisons, these specialty uh, individuals. Uh, and that is something we fully believe we can build. And therefore, we are expecting to commercialize Celadelpar, at least in the U.S. on our own. We recognize that outside the U.S. there are additional challenges. Uh, we can certainly uh, look to commercialize Celadelpar in other regions outside the U.S., but at least at present, we're having discussions and evaluating opportunities to potentially license the rights to Celadelpar outside the U.S. Again, we've not made any final decisions, 
As I mentioned, this phase three study, we believe, would give us the ability to register Celadelpar in the U.S. and in Europe. So at a later date, we'll make a final determination around how to commercialize outside the U.S. But fundamentally, it is absolutely a goal for us to commercialize ourselves in the U.S. and then you know, work uh, either ourselves or with others to bring this drug to as many patients outside the U.S. as possible that could benefit. And what are you doing to build a pipeline behind this? So, you know, today I, I will highlight we are very focused on this opportunity for PBC patients. And so a vast majority of our internal operations and our capital resources are, in fact, dedicated to Celadelpar in PBC. The company has had a long history of drug discovery and development. In fact, we do have another asset in a phase 2A early study, proof of pharmacology study, uh, to assess the potential for that compound, MBX2982, a GPR119 agonist, so another oral once-daily GPCR compound that has the potential, we believe, to prevent hypoglycemia, particularly in type 1 diabetics. That's at least what we're exploring. It's very early days, I should caution. And that study is being fully funded today by the, Chelms the Helmsley Charitable Trust. So we're not having to spend our internal capital resources on this program today. That phase 2A study is enrolling patients. We believe we may have the opportunity to see that data set sometime in 2022 and then make a decision on whether or not we progress that program ourselves through further phase two development or whether we look to outlicense to another player more specifically suited in metabolic disease. I will say that we think Celadelpar in chronic inflammatory liver disease may have the potential to be studied uh, in a variety of rare diseases. PBC, again, is our central focus based on the significant amount of data we've amassed to date and the benefit we believe that Celadelpar has the potential to bring to patients. But there are other uh, rare cholestatic liver diseases. One in particular is a disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSC. Today, there are no drugs approved for patients with PSC. It is a more complex disease than PBC, more heterogeneous, in fact. And so development in PBC, PSC carries uh, significant risk as well, uh, and uncertainty, at least, in terms of showing efficacy. But that's a potential area where we do believe there's, there's an opportunity for us to develop Celadelpar, at least to investigate in a phase two study, the potential merits of addressing the needs for patients with PSC. So within Celadelpar, there are opportunities to expand. And then finally, we are always looking for opportunities to potentially in-license or bring in other assets or generate early lead compounds that could help us uh, advance our pipeline. But again, I, I will completely, uh, you know, complete this by, by finalizing and saying we are very dedicated to PBC patients and in the near term trying to advance care for those patients. You recently completed a $75 million offering. How is that funding being used and, and how far will it take you? So, you know, we, we absolutely have, uh, I think, done a great job over the last few years in ensuring that we have a balance sheet to execute on our goals. And as I mentioned, our goal is really to bring Celadelpar all the way to patients. This recent $75 million raise backed by very dedicated biotech-focused investors, experienced, dedicated biotech-focused investors, 
really gives us the ability now with the cash already on hand to complete not just the phase three response study, but to complete the entirety of a phase three program that would position us to be able to file for registration and for approval. So this additional 75 million importantly takes us through the anticipated timeline to top line data with cushion, with at least six to nine months additional cash runway. Again, if we hit our timelines for enrollment and top line data. So, you know, it gives us the ability to get through the study to release the top line data and have adequate cushion thereafter. Sujal Shah, President and CEO of Sima Bay Therapeutics. Sujal, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.